Let's pick up the reading then from verse 13 of First Peter, as he continues this thought um, about producing the glory of God from verse 13 to verse 17. Okay, Hadenike, can you read for us? All right. First um, Peter verse 13 to 17. Mm-hmm. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former loss as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And if you call on the father who without partiality Judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves thoroughly the time of your stay here in fear. Okay, thank you. It ends with a semicolon, meaning that the thought continues, but I thought we should not read too much, right, as we get started. So verse 13 begins with a therefore, right? And we said every time you're studying the Bible and you read a therefore, you need to understand what it is there for, right? So he's saying, therefore, get up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. So, therefore, so on what basis is he asking you to to get up the loins of your mind? That is to, to set your mind, what you might call a mindset, right? On what basis? If you remember what we've studied so far, First of all, he's, remember that we said that the, the lively hope that we have in Christ has two streams to it, right? The first stream is a future promise, that there is a future promise of an incorruptible inheritance, an inheritance that will allow us to experience the presence of God, the fellowship of the Godhead in a way that we cannot experience in this body. It is, a, it is a glorious promise. It is an incorruptible promise. It is, it's a promise. It's a state of being that does not fade away, right? And even if you don't have any other hope in life, right? The apostles, the first believers always insisted that this hope is sufficient for your faith to last. You know, today we have the hope and the promise, right? Of a good life, right? Of breakthrough, of blessing and of all of that, which are all nice and in order, but they are never the hope of the gospel. They are never the foundational hope of the gospel. The foundational hope of the gospel is that there is a promise. And so Peter is saying, in view of that promise, but we also said that the second stream of of our living hope, right, of what makes our hope living is that there is a living person in us And that living person is the Holy Spirit. And through him, we have a power that we can access by faith. That there is an active power in you today that can can produce the virtues and the results of the life of God. So in view of the promise and in view of the power. You see, God does not ask you to do anything before he shows you the provision that he has made. Either God reveals himself to you and say, hey, I am El Shaddai, so therefore 
walk before me and be blameless. Either God reveals himself to you or he reveals his provision to you. So for every instruction, for every admonition, for every charge that you find in this letter and in this scripture, there's a provision that makes it possible. Because you're going to see that the admonition here is that you have to be holy. On what basis do you have to be holy? Is it some kind of self-effort that you have to put in to try to avoid hell at all costs? Right? Is that what it's referring to? No, that's not the basis for a life of holiness. Holiness is not a desperate attempt to not offend God. We're going to see what it is. It's not, it's not a desperate attempt to, to avoid hell at all costs. There is a basis for holiness. It says, in view of the promise of the incorruptible inheritance that is yours and that is mine, and in view of the power that is available to us today to, to enable us to live out the godly life that is in God, in view of that, right, have a mindset. Now, that mindset, um, the way Peter expands on that mindset is by looking at the negative side of it, right? So he's saying, have a mind that does not conform yourself to the former lust as in your ignorance. Now, you can see here that he's writing to Christians, right? People who are born again, people who are believers. But he's saying to them that even though you're born again, even though you are a believer, you are a believer, there is a nature in you, right, that he calls your former lust. There is a, there is a sensitivity in you, if you like. If you don't want to use the word nature, right? Another name that the Bible uses for this sensitivity is, is the flesh, there is something in you that you always have to watch out for. It is the old man. It is the flesh. It contains lust. Everything that is contrary to the supernatural life of God that is in your spirit is in that fallen nature. And it is because you have that fallen nature in you that Peter is saying, you need to set your mind. You need to make a decision. You need to be deliberate about it. It's not going to happen accidentally. You know, someone once told me in a Bible study, not this Bible study, that grace is automatic. No, you would have to come before the throne of grace and present yourself and ask for grace and set your mind that, okay, so you, you, you should not be, become discouraged because, oh, you gave your life to Christ. You were filled with the Holy Spirit, right? You even speak in tongues. You even pray and things happen. But then there, there are still traces of the fallen nature in you. No, he's saying that, yes, it, it's, it's part of all of us. That if each of us do not take care, there is the possibility that we'll become conformed, right? That we'll begin to um, assuade to the desires of the former life. There is nobody that outgrows this. It is only that incorruptible inheritance. When, when we put on that incorruptible inheritance, that we will receive what Peter calls the end of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. It's, as that, it's at that point that every trace of, of fallenness, if you like, or every trace of rebellion that is in the soul of man, it's at that point that it will be completely swallowed up 
by the power and the intensity of the immortal of the immortal life that God will give to us, right, at his appearance. But until then, you and I live in a fallen body, right? But yet, despite the fact that there is this nature in us that is easy for us to conform to, right, the demand of God remains that be holy for I am holy. So my first question for us is, why does God want you to be holy? Before we look at what holiness is, right? Okay, maybe this question is not very difficult because the answer is very obvious, right? The answer says, be holy for I am holy. But maybe to rephrase the question then would be, what is it about the holiness of God that makes it a necessity for you and I? Because this seems to be how God this not this seems to be this is how god described himself to the israelites in the book of leviticus right when he began to prescribe to them the patterns of the priesthood and he was saying to them i i brought you out of egypt and i wanted to make you a kingdom of priests right meaning a people who who are near to me a people who know me a people who are in my service a people who are under my care but there's one thing you need to know if, if you and I are going to be that close. And that is that I am holy. And the biggest problem you're going to have with me, and like we saw in the Old Testament, that the biggest issue they had with God was the issue of his holiness. So when the tabernacle, for example, the tabernacle of meeting, right, was erected in the wilderness, you see that the first thing that was erected was the fence. So that when you see it, you see that there's a separation, that whatever it is that, that goes on in there is, is holy, is separate. So what is it about the holiness of God that is so essential? What do you think? Or maybe we can actually even go to the question again and say, what is holiness, right? Because that's the charge here. It says, don't conform yourselves to your former lust. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. What do you think? Okay, quickly write in the chat. Holiness means to be set apart, yes. So you see, that's part of what it means to be holy. The, the holiness of God is what separates him from every other God. It's what distinguishes him. Now, remember that from the perspective of history, right? After Adam fell, he was driven from the Garden of Eden. And what that meant was that, part of what it meant was that man, you and I, began to live outside of the presence of God. So that the very mode, right, into which we were born is a mode that is not aware of God. We don't know, if you like, we don't know his nature, his true nature. We don't know his value system because we are away from his presence. Now, the story continues in Genesis with Cain and Abel, and Cain particularly departed from the presence of God. It was recorded, and he set up a city. And that city, that civilization, is what in the New Testament, and we know today as the world system, a system that is apart from God, that doesn't have the presence of God, the value system of God at its heart, at its center. It is this system that leads to paganism, right? Um, adultery, idolatry, all kinds of false worship. So this is what the earth degenerated into, that because the true God 
was no longer seen in his brightness and in his beauty, men began to make gods for themselves. And you see, those gods had all kinds of demands, even in Abraham's village, the awe of the Chaldeans. You know, there were certain cultures where, where they sacrificed their children, for example. Right? There, were, there were certain other cultures where, where there was a vindictiveness to the culture. So when Yahweh began to introduce himself to Israel, his first quality, the, the major quality he wanted them to know is that I'm not like anything that you've seen. I'm not like anything that you've known. I'm not a wudun. And, and he told them that I don't want you to make any image for me because any image you make is made. And the very fact that it is made disqualifies it from representing me. I'm different. I am holy. I'm set apart. It is, it is the holiness of God that reveals the authenticity of God. Because, because, you know, when you're discussing with non-Christians, especially the ones that like to call themselves atheists, you discover that um, their biggest weakness, right? The, the core of life, which they cannot get to which they cannot grasp or lay hold of without God is the moral nature of life, right? Life at its, ve life at, at its very base is moral, human life at the very least. You know, I was listening to a podcast recently. I didn't finish, so I may not know everything that was said, but he was talking about some controversial comments that someone made about rape, for example. So you realize that rape is a thing in human life. Right? There's nobody under the sun right now. At least we can safely assume that there's nobody under the sun right now who truly believes that there's nothing wrong with rape. doesn't matter if you're an atheist or if you are not. Everybody accepts that rape is a problem. Right? But the, the host was making the point that this is not the case in the animal kingdom. Right? Among animals, there's nothing like rape. Right? There's just sexual intercourse. That's what it is. There's no moral nature to their lives. So that, that already points to a differentiation that at the very base of human life is a, more, is, is, a, is a moral standard that we don't know who put there. Because at the end of the day, you're, you're going to realize that the only way you can truly say that something is wrong and then it is truly wrong objectively is that there is an objective standard by which it is wrong. So it's not wrong because you said it is wrong. And I, or I said it is wrong, even though that could be the case. But the reason why it is really wrong is because there's an objective standard, right? And then when you begin to interact with these people more, you ask them, okay, what is that objective standard? Is it the law of your country that says that rape is wrong? Is that what makes it wrong? So what if a tyrant comes into power and changes that law? Does that still make it right? And then they are going to realize that, okay, so it's not our society that sets that standard. And by the time they escalate that standard upward, they are going to reach the very apex of the universe, which is God himself. The very fact that we are moral beings is proof that there's a moral lawgiver, right? So morality is at the very heart of God. So any religious system, right, that, it's, that, does not, that is not holy, and we're going to see what holiness means. Any religious system that's not holy at its core is false. And that's why when God began to reveal himself, the way he, 
he he set himself apart from everything else that 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 the people at that time of human of human um, civilization had understood about God. The way he could set himself apart was to say, "I'm holy. I'm not like anything that you see the nations around you worshiping. I am holy. There is a moral justice to me, an absolute justice to me. There is a love to me." So yes, thank you, Kweku, for that answer that triggered that long explanation, right? That to be holy means that God is set apart. That's part of what it means, right? So you can see that holiness is the essential nature of God. In fact, the love of God that saves us will not make sense if not for the holiness of God, because it's the holiness of God that, that relates to us, that reveals to us the absolute standard of justice that God upholds for him to be God. And then we see what we deserve in light of that justice. It is only in that light that the love of God begins to make sense. That it begins to make sense that for God so loved the world. Because after the fall, the only recourse left was judgment and destruction. That's, that's the only thing that would have satisfied the claims of divine justice. But then the love of God, which is part of his holiness, began to spring up. Right. So holiness is, is, is an essential nature of God, friends. And it is emphasized in the Old Testament and in the New to, to differentiate God from anything else that is, is false, that is false. The, the, the holiness of God, right, is what produces what we call the glory of God. The glory of God is at the very heart of the kingdom of God. It's at the very heart of the throne of God. The glory of God is the effulgence of all the virtues of God. Huh. I don't know how I can explain this, but you see, when you wear a perfume, for example, right, <clears throat> and then you now come into a room, when you come into a room, suddenly your perfume begins to announce your entrance, right? There's something, a scent that goes out from you. That's the closest um, picture I can use to tell you what the glory of God is, because glory is not an is not a human term. It's, it's, a, it's an eternal term. It's only in eternity that we begin to understand what glory is itself. That glory is the, is the effulgence of the virtues of God. That if you're looking for the person that is perfect in all virtues, perfect in love, perfect in justice, perfect in humility, that when that person steps into the room, right, they the coming together and the full expression of all those virtues is what makes glory. And you see, this is why the prophets, the prophets that prophesied, right, desire to look into these things. This is why even the angels desire to look into this thing, that God decided that he will share that glory with man, that you and I can become channels of that same glory. So that, just in case you're wondering, what is God's aim in my life, right? Why did he save me? Okay, after he saved me, why didn't he take me home to be with him? Why did he give me a calling? A correct answer to those questions is that God's aim is to produce his glory through your life. Because God is spirit and he cannot be seen by visible eyes, he's hoping that through your life, a measure, through my life, a measure of his glory, that beauty that is compelling, 
Ah, that holiness that is beautiful will emerge. That's what God is hoping. That's what is, that's, that's what is wonderful about your salvation. That the glory of God can flow through your life. That God can achieve glory on the earth. That the knowledge of, of the glory of God can fill the earth because God has you and I. God has a people. That when they look for the character of God, they can find it in us. When they look for the power of God, they can find it in us. But that glory, friends, is not separated from the holiness of God, the essential nature of God, that God is just, he is right, and he is loving. And so then, for you and I then, what does it mean to be holy? So that's why he says here, as it is written, be holy, for I am holy. So we've seen, if you like, the Godward aspect of holiness, right? That God is whole, he's complete. He's, he's the perfection of beauties. He's the perfection of virtues. And then he's saying, be holy, for I am holy. So, us word, if you like, then what does it mean for us to be holy? In view of everything that we've said so far, what does it mean for us to be holy? Well, from what I think is um, mm -hmm. for us to be holy means we should be set apart from the rest of the world. Okay. And our nature should be nature of God, nature of Christ. Mm. I like the word you use, our nature. So you see, when the Holy Spirit came into us, we already received that nature, right? Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death but the gift of god is eternal life right do you agree that you have the nature this nature of holiness that you have it and you have it by virtue of the of the life that you received at rebirth do you agree with that or do you or do you find it outstanding or astonishing rather yeah i agree with that even though sometimes it's it's not easy to fully grasp it and to um because sometimes as human beings we like do things that are not exactly christian like and mm -hmm. they begin to question and ask do i really have this nature <laughs> so, yeah sometimes that's interesting right so is it the case that sometimes you have the nature maybe if you pray for many hours then you have the nature and then so other times you don't is, is it a hit and miss thing or is it really the case that you and i have the nature well, I believe we have the nature, right? But sometimes it's hard to, like, fully express it. Speak, yes. Express it. Really express that nature. Yeah. yeah. So what do you think is the missing puzzle? What's the missing piece there? I think you, are, you, you took us very close to the answer, right? That the problem is not that we don't have the nature because he's saying that God is holy. It's ontological to him. It's, it's part of who he is. So you to be holy because the one who called you is holy. The one who begot you, the one who gave birth to you is holy. So now you need to set your mind to also be holy. So holiness, friends, for you and I, is to be wholly consumed by the life of God that is within because Remember what we said, that there is a nature that you can be conformed to. 
and that nature is called the flesh and that flesh has your your mind is more accustomed to that mode of living to that mode of responding to life of reacting to life however there is a new life in your spirit and to be holy means to allow the life that is in your spirit to consume you to to saturate you that's what holiness is so that the proof of that saturation right the proof of that of that consummation is that we are single minded there's a dedication to us there is a peace to us right we're not easily distracted there's a self control to us we are we are in control of the appetites of our bodies of our flesh that seeks to derail us so just in case you are a believer and you find that instead of you being in control of your body your body is the one in control of you it's a, it's a common case it's not it's not a strange case and the, that's the, the the antidote or if you like the recipe for that situation is that you need you need to be consumed you need to be submerged by the life within and that's why the bible talks about the fellowship of the holy spirit because it's in the place of fellowship that you contact the grace of god so that if i stay long enough from fellowship deep prolonged fellowship with the holy spirit it's just a matter of time all the traces of the old man will begin to emerge you know there's a there's a popular expression or quote if you like that says that if i don't pray for one day right only me knows that i didn't pray for one day if i don't pray for two days only god knows but if i don't pray for three then other people will eventually find out right because we are we 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 were made to be dependent may the grace of our lord jesus christ the love of god and the sweet fellowship of the holy spirit it's not just a prayer that we're supposed to be reciting it's a it's a mode of existence that ensures that the grace that was made available by the love of god continually flows into our lives is by fellowship fellowship is how we become saturated friends don't become comfortable with with an unsaturated life a life that is not bathed in prayer a life that is not bathed in the word of god daily let there be a dissatisfaction. I don't know if there's something that you do in your life that if you don't do it for a day, there is a dissatisfaction. That's the same way it should be for you and I with the presence of God. Let there be a dissatisfaction in your soul if you have not heard the voice of your beloved, if you have not spoken to him, if you have not given him your words, and if you have not allowed him to impart his own words to you. Yes. Because when you and I are saturated with God, it's going to show, right? There's going to be that inward discipline. There's going to be that single-mindedness. And, that, and there's going to be an overflow of love towards others. Because the reason why love eventually overflows towards others is that when you're saturated with God, that's when you're going to realize how fallen the earth is. That because of the fall, nobody's normal. Nobody's behaving as normally as they could. Nobody's behaving according to design. So 
there is a mercy that flows out. You don't take everything at face value. You are merciful. But you see, it's not a mercy that you forge. It's a mercy that, that, that is an overflow of the time that you've spent in the presence of God. So that's what it means when he says, be holy for I'm holy, right? There is something in us that is liable, that is prone to be conformed. If we leave ourselves, it's just like your, it's just like your bedroom. Have you noticed that? You leave your bedroom the way it is. According to entropy, the bedroom does not arrange itself. Instead, no matter how tidy it is, it naturally begins to disintegrate. That's, that's the curse of the natural life, right? That there's something in us that's liable to be conformed, to become bitter, to become hasty, to become unsettled, right? But, but Peter says, set your mind. If, if your life is going to produce the glory of God, set your mind. Set your mind to stay in the presence of God until you are saturated with his life. Okay. Um, so any thoughts or questions here before we continue? Okay. So Adenike, can you read for us from verse 17, since we didn't touch it, from verse 17 to verse 25 of chapter one? All right. Mm -hmm. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Holy through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren. Love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. Thank you so much. So he begins to contrast the glory that is eternal, right? The glory that is enduring to the glory of man. You see, there is a glory that comes from man. And what that means is that there are certain virtues that man can produce because the tree that Adam ate of was the tree of good, of the knowledge of good and evil. So there is a certain goodness that is not God that man can produce, right? That some people can find a natural compassion, a, nat um, a natural sense of justice. But you see the logic and the judgment, right? And the perspective of scripture about anything that comes from the fallen man that is not rooted in God is that all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. So. Anything that you can 
produced by your own will. Oh, I want to love now, so I'm going to do it. Hmm. The Bible says it's like the flower of the grass. It's just a matter of time, circumstances, before you realize that it doesn't endure. You are finally going to meet the kind of person that you cannot love no matter how much you try. Every sense of justice, as beautiful as that is, and of course, we, we need to always be on the side of justice. But you see, every move or sense of justice that emanates just from the natural goodness of man has its limits. In fact, like we're seeing in, most, in our day in most places, many times those movements even become corrupted by the natural evil that is in man. So there's a contrast of glories, right? That man has a glory, but that glory, whatever it is that you can become in yourself, by yourself, through education, through exposure, right? It's not the apex of what God has for you and I. There is another glory. But you see, how do you produce that glory? He shows us two main channels, right? By which the glory that God wants to produce in our lives can be actualized. The first channel is the channel of priesthood. Now, remember that Peter is not writing to us a theological piece. He was not the most educated of the apostles and he was his style is not the, the style where he picks up a theme like Paul and begins to expound on it with all the Greek knowledge that he has. No, Peter is, Peter is speaking to us from his life. This is someone who, who knew Christ in person and received him in his heart through the Holy Spirit and began to live a certain kind of life on account of that experience. So you can say that this is the most raw form of Christianity. That's what Peter had. The, the, like the type that was lived in the burning flame of the reality of what Christianity really is. And part of what he found was at the heart of what it means to produce the glory of God was the matter of priesthood, which is going to talk about shortly in chapter two. Verse 17 says, and if you call on the father, what does it mean to call on the father? To call on the father is to pray. So this is prayer. He's saying that your life of prayer is one of the reasons why God wants you to be holy because your, your, your walk of holiness is going to be essential to your effectiveness in prayer in priesthood. You know, unfortunately, we have a Christianity today that claims to love God but does not pray. You know, God is spirit. That's what Jesus said, right? When, because Jesus said no one has seen the Father. No one can reveal him except the Son. And so the way Jesus revealed the Father is that he told us that God is spirit. So anyone who, wants, who says they love God, who wants to worship God, doesn't have too many options for how to do it. He says, you have to do it in spirit and in truth. So it's, it's, it's not possible to say that we love God and not spend time in his presence in prayer. In Psalm 18, verse one, let's digress for a second because I think this point is necessary to make for us, right? In Psalm 18, verse one, David said, I will love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. You know, it's, it's, it's possible for us to sing this psalm. Oh, I, I will love you, oh Lord, my strength. And then we proclaim all the beautiful things about God. How he's our fortress, 
and our deliverer and our strength. But it is possible for us to do all of that and still never touch God and still not know him. And it just becomes a waste because it's just a song on our lips. But then verse 3 tells us how David translates his love. Verse 3 says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. So there are at least two scenarios upon which I will call upon the Lord. The first scenario is that he's worthy to be praised. It doesn't matter whether I have a prayer point or not, but because he deserves my time, he deserves my attention, he deserves my words, he deserves my prayer. So I will call upon him. This is the expression of my love for the Lord. I will call upon him. And then the second scenario is the scenario of, of enemies, of affliction. That when times are difficult, I will not begin to run helter-skelter. Meanwhile, I claim that I love the Lord. But, but my love for him will make him my first recourse whenever anything around my life does not line up with his plan for my life. I will call upon the Lord. Friends, there is no loving God that can be separated from a, from a devoted life of prayer. Because the spirit of prayer is devotion. I will call upon the Lord. So that's what Peter found in his experience, right? That in the experience of being, of being a vessel through which God wants to um, express his glory, right? That the main outlet, the main channel for that glory is the privilege and the blessing of priesthood. He says, and if you call on the Father. However, he, he wants us to see the nature of the Father. He's expanding on the nature of the Father and why holiness is an essential part of our priesthood. Because when you're calling upon God, the one you're calling on is without partiality, right? He, he, he does not respect people. He does not say, oh, because it's NA, I'm going to change the rules. Or because it's Joshua, I'm going to behave differently. I'm going to act like I didn't see X, Y, Z. The Bible says that he's impartial. He judges according to each one's work. And it says because of this, because this is the kind of God you are praying to. You, you are not praying to a lifeless God. You are not praying to a false hope. No. You are praying to a living and holy God who is impartial in his judgment. Because of this, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. You see, we've always said, and it's important for us to drum it into our hearts again, that God's character, his standard did not change between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Sorry, I had to pause to wait for the noise from outside to go away. Okay. What changed between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is not the character of God. God was not super super strict, super holy in the Old Testament. But then in the New Testament, he became a teddy bear. You know, it was like, you know what? I, I was a bit too harsh with your father. So just come as you are and we are all fine and good. No, the essential nature of God did not change. And that's what Ananias and Sapphira found out very brutally, that the essential holiness and impartiality and justice of God does not change. What changes is the system through which God administers his life. 
right? In the old covenant, the system was a system of the law. And because it was a system of the law, it was a system of some kind of merit. So practically every condition, every promise, every blessing in the Old Testament was conditional, conditioned on obeying the law. However, the condition in the New Testament is grace, that if you can receive grace, then every demand of the law can be fulfilled through you. And when we say demand of the law, I hope it's clear to us that we don't mean the ceremonial demands of the law. We don't mean the civil demands of the law, but we mean the moral demands of the law. Because even though the, the ceremonial and civil demands of the law have passed away, right? Because those ceremonies have ceased, that civilization has passed. And the moral law is unbreakable. It is immutable. Thou shall not lie, is still thou shall not lie. But the difference is that God comes into us by grace to enable us not only to endure his commandments, but to begin to enjoy them. There is grace. We've always said that it's a graceless person that ends up in sin. So that the antidote for sin, according to Romans chapter 5, is grace. The antidote for weakness is grace. That's what is different, right? That in the new covenant, you and I have access to a throne so that if you stumble, which will happen, because like we said, the way of Christ is learned, right? Nobody becomes a master on the first day. It is learned. So if you stumble, that's an invitation for more grace. If you keep stumbling, that's an invitation for more grace. A time will come when you are saturated with the life from within and the things that were your problem will desert you like a plague. Right? So I just wanted to lay that background. But he's saying that if your priesthood, if your prayer life is going to be effective, you will need to understand God's character of impartiality, that God rewards diligent hands. So the way that God has found to, <laughs> to make this, because you might ask yourself, what happens when your father is a judge, right? Because there's no, there's no doubting that God is your father, right? And as your father, there are many, there are minimum requirements that he does as your father that, that, you know, once you pray for those things, they happen, such as your daily bread. He will not be your father if he allows you to starve to death. So that's why there are many Christians that are not living godly, but are experiencing answers to prayer. And those answers to prayers are what Paul calls the kindness of God. Because God is your father, he's committed to you in a different way, regardless of your rebellion, regardless of your mistakes even. Right? But then what happens when his role as father intersects with his role as judge? And you might be surprised how often this happens because in your prayer life, you're going to reach the kind of prayer point that nothing that you know can shift this one. It, you need to come to God as judge. And it is in those moments that you realize that he's righteous. So the question for us then is, what happens when your father needs to play the role of judge? Does he pervert justice because you are his son? Right? In the case of God, what happens? Well, I can tell you that what happens is that God releases grace. You see, God wants to reward you. He wants to reward you for your faithfulness. 
but he wants to be just and faithful when he does it, right? So what he does is that he releases grace so that the grace of God begins to stir you up. He begins to stir you up into holy desire. Suddenly you have a desire for holy things. Suddenly you have a desire to fast, to wait upon God, to give, to serve. It is the life of God in you that is stirring up those desires. And then when you participate in that life, when you work out those things that are being worked into you, God now rewards you. So you see, he wants to reward you, but he wants to be just when he does it. That's why if a believer ends, ends up in a spiritually legal dilemma, God often brings redemption through a process. There are many things he cannot cast out, especially if a believer is involved. And I'm not talking about demons, right? I'm talking about situations because it will take a process. What God will do is that he will say to you, my grace is sufficient for you. And then that grace will begin to lead you to a, to a pathway of redemption, a narrow path. That path does not exist anywhere else. It is prescribed by God. You ended up on that path because of your ignorance or because of your rebellion. But it is a good path because if you follow it to the end, it's going to produce redemption. And at the end of that path, God can now stand and decree your liberty. And he will be just when he does it. Yes, there are situations like that in our lives. I wanted to lay that foundation for us to see what happens when, when God's role as father and as judge intersects. And to remember that the fact that God is father does not remove him from his throne as judge. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 6, that God cannot be mocked. God cannot be mocked. No, he cannot. Whatever a man sows, that will he reap. God knows you more thoroughly than you know yourself, right? And he knows what you're asking for and why you're asking for it and if you are ready for it. And so, so that your experience of answered prayers in many regards, it's proportional to God's knowledge of your heart. So if you know that, then what you're supposed to do, right, is to begin to work on your heart. God cannot be mocked. This is the nature of God, that he has called us to a priesthood because the priesthood that God has called us to has great potential. It can shift the destinies of families. It can shift the destinies of nations that a man, a woman, on their knees, they didn't even spend transport money. That's how financially cheap it is in quotes. That on your knees, just by your crying out to God, things can begin to move in a family. Things can begin to move in a city. Yes, that's the power of priesthood. And because of how effective that power is, it must go through the justice system of God. So friends, our holiness is what is going to determine how much of God's glory can be produced through our priesthood. A big part of our exercise of priesthood is dealing with our hearts before God, allowing him to us, allowing him make us holy, allowing him saturate us. Yes, so that we can stand with him and insist on justice and insist that his plan be done. So priesthood is the first channel, right? It's the first channel 
of the glory of God. It is through a priesthood, a holy priesthood, that God wants to reveal himself. Does that make sense to us? Any thoughts? Any questions? Okay. I take it that we're, we are following, right? The second channel by which God wants to reveal his glory is the channel of his redemptive work in our lives. What do I mean by that? So we said the first channel is your prayer. That's the channel through which God wants to showcase his glory. That's the channel through which God wants to bring his glory into the earth. Your prayer. But the second channel is your very life. That your life is a specimen. It's a scientific specimen, if you like. It's a showcase of redemption. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, that you will be witnesses for me. You will receive power, verse 8, after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and the power is supposed to make you a witness, that your life, the very life you are, is supposed to testify to the efficaciousness of redemption. That when people look at you, they should be able to identify that it is not human ability that made you what you are, that made you like this, but it is the redeeming grace of God, that your life is supposed to advertise that possibility that there is a plane of life that can be lived on the energy of the grace of God. That's the second channel through which God wants to reveal his glory so that you don't only pray, but you also live a life that is compelling. Yes, that shows those in darkness, those who have been blinded by the God of this world, an alternative, that it is possible to be powered on the fear of grace. God wants your life to be and to be a channel of his glory, to be a means through which his glory can be known and can spread. That's what he's saying in verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like gold or silver, that your redemption was costly and that the thing that you have with God, the life that you have, the grace that you have, is much more precious than gold or silver. And the way you know that is that the price that God paid to make you a channel of his glory was not silver or gold. Those things are corruptible. They are perishable. They can fade away. Yes, you were redeemed from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. So you see the power of tradition there, but we don't have time. So you were not redeemed with any of those things. Your redemption was with a precious blood as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Why is it that God needed to die, right? To have a lamb without blemish and without spot. This illustrates the holiness of God. That as critical as redemption was, as necessary as redemption was, as vital, as important as it was, God did not achieve redemption outside of the context of his holiness, of his justice. Even redemption itself was purchased on the grounds of justice so that he's trying to make you see that the life you and I have is free, but it was not cheap. It was expensive. And his, his cost is supposed to inform us about his worth, that I have something that is more precious than silver and gold. To put it in contemporary language, I have something that is more precious than US dollars. I have something that is more precious than a good job. 
You know, I keep saying to us that when Jesus says that you are the salt of the earth, it means that it is there's something in you that can preserve families, that can preserve companies. You are not at the mercy of your company. You are not at the mercy of the economy of the place where you dwell. That as the salt of the earth, it is your presence in that place that gives God the excuse to preserve the company, to preserve the estate, to preserve the economy. That there's something you have that is more precious than silver and gold. And God wants you to allow the, the virtues of that life to submerge the virtues of, of the flesh. Right? So just in case Satan is trying to make you moody, you know, that's one of the <clears throat> tributaries of the flesh. Maybe things did not go your way and then a certain moodiness or depression is coming on you. And you know, there's a way that your soul can like moodiness or depression. No. You refuse that testimony and instead you allow the joy, you allow it. It's not that you... It's not that you forge it or you form it, but you allow the joy that is of God to flow from inside out. In from verse 22, he begins to answer the question of how do we let our lives shine, if you like, right? How do we let our lives produce this glory? In verse 22, he says that since you have purified your soul in obeying the truth through the spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, Love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass and the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flowers and its flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever now this is the word by which which by the gospel was preached to you so in the first part for your priesthood he says be holy right but then for your for your redemptive life if you like right for the shining of the life of god in you he says be sincere be sincere be sincere and the way you can be sincere, you know, sincere with the truth, sincere in your love for the brethren, having a pure heart towards everyone. The way you can achieve that is to return to the root of your salvation. He says you were born again by, by an incorruptible seed, that the word of God was what gave you life. Do you realize that the word of God was what caused the life of God to spring up in you like a well? So if it is true that the word of God was what produced the life that you have today, how much more does the word of God have the capacity to cause the virtues of that life to overflow? You know, there are many Christians today, right, who say, oh, I'm struggling with X, Y, Z who have never sat with the word of God concerning those things. You see, there is a limit to what prayer itself can achieve because it is by the word of God that you were born again. And that word is incorruptible. It lives, 
there is a stream of life that is flowing from it. And the things that flow from it are sure, they are steadfast, they abide forever. Yes, it is when you sit with the word. The word has a perspective for every problem, for every situation. It is able to cause the spring in you to burst out into a river. There is no such thing, friends, as a faithful Christian who is not rooted in the word of God. It's not possible. What you're going to find is that if all you know is prayer, you are going to pray and you're going to have results by prayer. But then your life will contain certain contradictions because the thing that was supposed to deal with those contradictions, that was supposed to purify the soul of those contradictions was the pure word of God. Yes, the pure word of God. That's why if we jump to chapter two, right? Verse one to three, as we close tonight, it says, therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire, desire the pure milk of the word of God, that this, this word has the ability to make you grow. That yes, you have tasted, it says in verse three, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Christianity is not just a taste, but it begins with a taste. The taste is an invitation to a deeper journey. Christianity is not just, oh, I want a touch from God and I go. Yes, it begins with a touch from God, but that touch, that, that taste is an invitation to dig deeper. There's more. You can grow through the word of God. It is through the word of God that you become sincere because the word of God searches you. It finds the malice in your heart. It finds it. It finds the deceit in your heart. It finds it. It finds the hypocrisy in your ways. It finds the envy. There, there are things the word of God can find in you, friends, that no preacher can tell you. I can, I can assure you of that. As someone who listens to sermons, you know, more than most people I know, that there are things you find in the word of God that no preacher has the stature to tell you. Only the word of God has the stature to reveal those things. It will, it will make a holy debacle out of you. It is the word of God that will cause the glory of God to begin to emerge from your vessel. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18 says, that now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. We know that this mirror, this mirror is the word of God. We behold Jesus through every Old Testament book. We behold him through every New Testament letter. That as we do that, as we ground ourselves in the word of God, the same glory, the same virtues that are captured in God will begin to emerge in our lives. And there is no end to that progression. It is from glory to glory that if you meet me tomorrow, I will be full of more glory if I give myself to the word of God. Yes, yes. God's aim in your life and in my life, friends, is to produce glory. And the first channel of that glory is our priesthood, our invitation to call upon the Lord. And the second channel is our lives. 
is our lives, the witness of, of our lives, the witness to the redeeming power of the grace of God. And if our lives will be conformed to the nature that can bear the glory of God, it will be by the sincere milk of the word of God. Yes. I want to encourage us and encourage myself to begin to study the word of God in its sincerity and in its simplicity. Because, you know, it's possible for you to study the word of God and you're just looking for rhema. You know, right? Especially in our generation. It's possible to study the word of God and you're just looking for a faith confession. It's possible to study the word of God and you're just looking for a promise. Just for something that, you know, when people hear it, you know, ah, this one went far. But you see, that's not how transformation happens. Transformation happens in the simplicity and the sincerity of the thing that the word of God is saying. I dare you, that thing that you're battling with before God, have you found his word for it? Have you found his word for it? Because that's where the glory lies. The Bible says that now, 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 where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. The spirit of the Lord is captured in the words of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord is captured in the place of prayer. In that place, there is liberty. That's where we can take for tonight. That's where we're going to stop for tonight because we cannot go further because of our time. Um, but at least we finished chapter one of First Peter. Okay. But that's it. The main thing I want to take away from tonight Right, is that the salvation you received is glorious. Even angels desire to look into it. Right, the reason it is, it is so, the reason they desire to look into it is because there's a glory that God wants to produce in your life, that the very virtues that make God God, he's willing to work them out in your life. And so he invites you into his holiness because the holiness of God cannot be separated for the from the glory of God, God cannot exchange His holiness for anything. God cannot. God is not given to public displays of fun. He does not align His glory with sinfulness, especially deliberate sinfulness. So God's aim is to produce glory in our lives. That's what makes our salvation beautiful, and that the first channel of that glory is our priesthood. That God wants you to have the kind of life that when you begin to call upon the Lord, upon the Father who judges without partiality, that your voice, because of your sacrifices, because of the sacrifice of your life, because of the beauty of holiness, that your voice will ring loud in the heavens. Yes. And God wants to produce glory through your life. Yes, that there'll be a gentleness. There'll be a love. There'll be a joy, there'll be a peace, there'll be a patience, there'll be a long-suffering, there'll be a power, a power over self, a power over circumstances that will be a testimony to the redeeming grace of God. And that's my prayer, that God will cause his glory to emerge through us, indeed, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.